Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller. The Department of Defense operates one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. Today, we're going to look at medical treatment in the military, how it has changed over the years, and its effect on civilian medicine since the Civil War. We welcome Professor Dale Smith, Chairman of the Department of Medical History at the Uniformed Services University of Health Science. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. If we could, I'd like to start out, tell our audience a little bit about the Uniformed Services University and its mission. All right. The Uniformed Services University was established in the 1970s when the draft ended and the Congress realized that the nation was going to need a new source of health care providers. And so a medical school was established. It now has a graduate school of nursing and continuing education functions to provide a unique kind of training, meet totally the civilian standards for medical school, for advanced nurse practitioners, but at the same time add to that curriculum both time and information and experience in the military. So the product is both a fully trained healthcare provider and a fully educated and trained military medical officer. So the students come to us, spend four years in medical school, and come out as captains in the Army or the Air Force or lieutenants in the Navy or public health service, ready to join their line counterparts as military officers, while at the same time being fully competent to go into competitive postgraduate education and specialization in medicine. How many graduates are there a year from the university? We turn out about 165 a year, admit a few more than that, of course. And then the nursing programs turn out about 50 nurse practitioners of one kind or another. There's family nurse practitioners, nurse anesthesia providers, and perioperative nursing specialists. Let's start with our topic and start going through some of the changes uh, that have happened over the last century and a half. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about survival rates and major causes of injury and death starting around Civil War time and working our way to the present. Sure. In the Civil War, the 1860s, the sciences of biomedicine as we know them today are in their absolute infancy. The germ theory has not yet been uh, widely accepted and studied. There's no study of bacteria. Uh, anesthesia exists, but we don't know much about surgical anomalies in uh, body design and development. We have a very limited preventive medicine component and an even more limited therapeutic component. So death rates in Civil War hospitals of the wounded are perhaps 20%. A lot of that is post-operative infection and shock. We don't have any blood transfusions, for example. We don't understand fluid volume. We don't understand electrolytes. The biggest loss of personnel, though, was to disease. There are twice as many people lost to disease in the Civil War as there are lost to enemy action. So that you have diseases that we no longer think about, typhoid, dysenteries of a fatal nature, pneumonias, that we could treat with an antibiotic that put people into hospital for weeks on end and frequently had a fatal outcome in the Civil War. In the latter part of the 19th century, as the germ theory and modern physiology were developed, we began to change that so that by World War I, we learned debridement and cleaning out the surgical wound. We don't have near the post-operative infection rates. 
and the died of wounds rate drops to about 8%. We still have a good bit of disease, but preventive medicine has come into its own. We understand fecal-oral transmission routes. We understand vectors. So that the results of things like typhoid fever that had so devastated recruit camps in the Civil War are almost unknown in World War I. The vaccine has been developed, and we have good sanitation in the field. By the time we get to World War II, we understand blood transfusion. We understand early operative resuscitation. We have several more vaccines, paratyphoids, typhus, cholera, yellow fever, so that we really can reduce significantly the loss from disease, while at the same time we can salvage many more people. By 43, penicillin is available, and the diet of wounds rate now falls to a little under 3% by the end of the Second World War. Some diseases, particularly the tropical diseases, still cause us major problems in the Pacific, but Adabrin has been discovered, and during the war, we work out how to use it to prevent malaria. But unlike a vaccine, this is something people have to monitor very carefully, so in combat, it occasionally breaks down. By the time we get to Vietnam, we're very good at surgical resuscitation, fluids and electrolytes. The civilian world is building critical care units. In Korea, we introduced the helicopter. By Vietnam, we have widespread use of the helicopter from point of wounding back to definitive surgical care. And more diseases, meningitis, some of the childhood diseases like rubella are being brought under control by vaccines so that the disease rate is falling even more. And we go under 2% for a diet of wounds rate. By the time we get to the first Gulf War in the 90s, we have essentially eliminated any significant disease problem. There's a few acute dysenteries and some upper respiratory infections, but they are mild and they are brought rapidly under control. And disease becomes a much less issue than uh, injuries. And today, in combat in Afghanistan and in Iraq, the disease rates are very low. There's still some tropical diseases like leishmaniasis that have to be prevented with nets and breaking the vector chain, but we're getting better at it, and we are salvaging people at phenomenal rates. We're well under 2% on a consistent basis for diet of wounds. So there's been huge progress over the century and a half as modern medical science and medical specialization have been brought to the battlefield in a much more timely way, and we redeem the promise of caring for those in harm's way at a level that was simply unimagined in the past. If you're just tuning in, this is the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM Channel 233. And our guest is Professor Dale Smith, Chairman of the Department of Medical History of the Uniformed Services University of Health Science. As I've done some reading on this, and I think of some of the things that came in, maybe started in civilian life, but were certainly much more actively pursued in the military. And then there was kind of a contra-coup effect back to the civilian life. For example, x-rays becoming prominent uh, in the late 1890s as an experimental tool, but being used quite a bit in World War I, plastic surgery coming out of the experience of World War I. And as you stated, the, the use of antibiotics and pain relief, morphine and blood transfusions in, in uh, World War II, artificial kidneys during the Korean War and the use of helicopters and the triage system. Can we talk about some of that a little bit? Sure. 
there are two kinds of synergies between military medicine and civilian health care. The military has huge logistics, evacuation, movement issues, and so frequently they are more innovative in that regard. The classic example is the EMS system of today's urban center. We think of emergency medical systems as a triage center with helicopters to go out to pick people up off highways. If you go back to the Civil War, nobody had an ambulance, and an organized echelon ambulance system was put in place in the Army of the Potomac by a surgeon named Jonathan Letterman. After the war, some of his doctors, in particular Dr. Dalton, went back to the city working at Bellevue Hospital. He realized that these ambulances could work in civilian life in the modern industrial city, and they set up the first urban ambulance system in America as the Bellevue Ambulance Service based upon Dalton's Civil War experience of putting an intern and a horse-drawn ambulance out where the fireboxes could summon them to help people, rushing those people then to Bellevue for care. Same thing happened with the helicopter, introduced in Korea, made common in Vietnam, and then with a program called Military Assistance to Traffic and Safety, military helicopters pioneered in Colorado and Texas the use of civilian evacuation. So that the modern system of helicopter emergency services comes out of directly a military experience, military helicopters transferred directly to the civilian world. The second part is the science base of medicine almost always starts in the civilian world. Blood transfusion is an excellent example. George Kreil is working on blood transfusion in the first decade of the 20th century. He publishes, it's used experimentally in a variety of hospitals as his residents and fellows scatter around the country. And when World War I breaks out, these young men who've seen it as an experimental tool find this huge need for treating shock in the battlefields of France. And so they begin to continue the experimentation, collect a lot more data, because there's much more trauma in the brief period of war than there would normally be in a city. So you collect a lot more data very quickly, and after the war, blood transfusion is readily accepted as an important therapeutic innovation. It just collapsed the time needed to test and learn about this new development, that the basic work had been done before the war. During the interwar period, we learned about type and cross-match and how important that is, particularly in a second transfusion. And as we moved into the Second World War, the military began to fund research on blood products to make the blood more transportable. Packed cells, plasma extraction, different factors were discovered. That then drove more research after the war to give us our modern discipline of hematology. Penicillin is a similar kind of thing. Starts before the war in the laboratory with Flory and Chain building on Fleming's work. The war comes. Public need is expressed. The pharmaceutical companies collaborate in research. We develop rapidly deep vat fermentation for penicillin. And we accelerate the time frame from probably 10 or 15 years to 15 months to get penicillin online in massive amounts for utilization. The amount of infection osteomyelitis, surgical infections, sexually transmitted diseases, gave you a lot of cases in which penicillin would be useful, so you could do those clinical experiments much more quickly and under much more rigid control in a military environment. We continue to see that with hemostatic agents today as uh, clotting factors and chitin bandages pioneered before the war are now getting a lot of trial 
in the current operations and will probably accelerate their adoption and the civilian ambulance by, again, a decade or more because of the presser function of the war experience. Dale, I very much appreciate your time. It's gone so fast and we're out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, I always like to, if possible, leave our listeners with a reference, a place to go, you think, for them to find a nice overview of this type of history that we're talking about? There's a nice little book edited by John Greenwood called Medics at War. And if people are interested, they can get that through any of the normal commercial sources. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM, the channel for today's medical professional. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Dale Smith, for speaking with us about the history of military medicine. We have another great segment coming up. Please stay tuned.